0: Welcome to The Sound of the Hound, a podcast about the early days of recorded sound. My name's James Hall. And I'm Dave Holly. And in this series, we look at the technology, the characters, and the stories behind the invention of recorded music over 120 years ago. We trace the pioneers... The dreamers. The adventurers. Who risked life and limb in their quest to bring music to the masses. And who embarked on extraordinary feats of daring
1: do in their mission to capture sound. These people
0: ultimately changed the way that we listen. And, incidentally, spawned a multi-billion pound industry in the process. Uh, let's explain a bit about who we are. I'm James Hall. I'm a music journalist and author. And I'm Dave Holly, and I'm a long-time music industry exec. Uh,
1: I used to run Abbey Road Studios, and I'm now a trustee of the EMI Archive Trust.
0: I wouldn't consider either as uh, particularly gramophone geeks. Or phonograph fanatics, no. But, but what we are is obsessed with this extraordinary period of time. Uh, our episodes will feature a range of characters, but one character you'll hear about again and again is a man called Fred Geisberg who was effectively employee number one in the UK recording industry and opened Britain's first recording studio in Covent Garden in 1898. Yeah, he really was the maestro. Yeah, he was the Steve Jobs of Victorian London. The Simon Cowell with a handlebar moustache. <laughs> so why is this podcast called The Sound of the Hound? Because we're doing it with the help of the EMI Archive Trust, which is a vast music and technology archive based in Hayes. The EMI Trust celebrates
1: the history of recorded sound and the work of the famous EMI group of companies, which include the Foundation
0: Company, the Gramophone Company, and also HMV, his master's voice. Which is why we've named the podcast The Sound of the Hound, after Nipper, the dog in the famous HMV logo.
1: This is The Sound of the Hound. The word legendary is bandied about too much in the music industry but I think it's apt for today's guest on The Sound of the Hound. We're joined by producer Joe Boyd. Joe was born in Boston, Massachusetts, and came to London in 1965 to establish an overseas office for Elektra Records. While here, he opened the famous UFO Club, where Pink Floyd played. He went on to produce Pink Floyd's first single, Arnold Lane, as well as producing Nick Drake, the Incredible String Band, Fairport Convention, Vashti Bunyan, and latterly, R.E.M., 10,000 Maniacs and Billy Bragg. He also worked as a music producer for Warner Brothers with special input into their films. So Joe worked on the soundtrack to A Clockwork Orange. He oversaw the recording of the famous duelling banjos scene in Deliverance and was involved in the making of the recently re-released Aretha Franklin film Amazing Grace. He also produced and co-directed a documentary about Jimi Hendrix. Hello, welcome to this episode of The Sound of a Hound. As usual, it's Dave Holly and James Hall hosting the podcast this week. We have a guest.
0: We are. We're very lucky to be joined by the legendary producer, Joe Boyd. Joe, thank you very much for, uh, for taking the time. Uh, pleasure. So this podcast is about the early days of the recorded music industry, but it's also about the role of the producer and the kind of march of technology o- over time. So I'd like to start with this question. Um, in 1898, the UK recorded music industry was effectively started by a young American coming over to London, Fred Geisberg. And then 65-ish years later, another young American, yourself, came to London and started recording. I'd be fascinated to know your take on the state of the music industry when you arrived in the middle of the
2: 60s. Well, I think my impression of the British music industry was that it was in many ways ahead of the American. Um, I mean, it was, I don't know. I, I guess I was more privileged here to get right into the middle of what was going on. Uh, Electra Records' office in London was at the headquarters of our distributor, um, which was at Pol- in Poland Street. Mm-hmm. So the office was right in the middle of Soho, and I used to go to the pub in Mortar Street where all the rec- record people hung out. Can, can I ask, which pub do you remember in... Um, the one that's on the just by Saint Anne's Court, uh, no, just the the one just down from the Marquee. What's it called? Um,
1: Is it the, the Nelly Dean, the, or the George, mm-hmm. or the Ship?
2: The Ship. It I could think. be the Ship. I think that's yeah. the nearest one to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, I think <clears throat> I remember in my impressionable first months uh, in Soho at Electra, I I met three different people who claimed credit for the piano intro to go now (laughs) and there was this um I mean it was just exciting to be in a way I'm sure if I'd been connected to the Brill Building in New York I would have been able to you know get close to what was going on in the pop world Um, but I just got into the situation in London more easily somehow because of London was more open, and I'd met a few people when I'd been here with Muddy Waters a year and a half earlier. And, um, and it seemed kind of vibrant and exciting, and you know and obviously I was hugely impressed with the fact that the British public, to say nothing of the music industry yeah. <coughs> was very attuned to American blues. You know, they, everybody knew who Muddy Waters was. In America, in that time, you had this weird dichotomy between folk blues and rock and roll. So two
0: separate entities. Yeah, were they? they were yeah.
2: very separated. And and so Muddy Waters, you know, and B.B. King recorded for rhythm and blues labels who were also recording Chuck Berry and Bo Diddley. And, and so they were, even though we liked them, I mean, everybody liked Muddy Waters and B.B. King. They were considered not quite as real as Mississippi John Hurt mm. and Brownie McGee and, you know, all that stuff. And it wasn't until after 65 and Dylan going electric, excuse me, that all of that changed. Um, and the rock era began. Yeah. But the rock era had already begun, although nobody called it that, um, in Britain. Yeah. With the Stones and, you know, I went to see, like my first month in London, I went to see... The Pretty Things and Gary Farr and the T-Bones yeah. at Central School of Art. And, you know, it was, there was nothing like that in night, spring of 64 in America, really. And was
0: there anything like the UFO Club in America? Or could that have only
2: happened in London at that time? Well, that was yet later. That yeah. was, you know, and, and it, you say that was later. Well, it was only two years later yeah. after I arrived to take up my job with Electra. Yeah. In fact, it was less. It was a year later but it seemed like an eternity Mm. i mean so much changed in that period of time and um and that the underground scene was for six months which was the eternity of six months was quite separate from the music industry it was an underground phenomenon but march of 67 arnold lane was released and then and then suddenly every group was wearing flowered shirts and taking acid and doing long sitar based guitar solos you know
1: I I think that um, thing about time speeding up and slowing down is the 60s you can see it. I mean, the speed at which you go from using the Beatles, Love Me Do, to, um, you know, 67 with Sergeant Peppers, Mm. to 69 with Albie Road and Goodbye. six, seven years, wasn't it? It's all over. George is 26. (laughs) Get on with the rest of your life. Exactly. (laughs) how quick life changed then. It goes from black and white to colour. Yeah. Yeah. It seems to.
2: But I think probably... For certain nineteen-year-olds today, mm. you know, the difference between a particular type of techno beat and another one changes within six months and feels like a huge change. Does, absolutely. And to us, we can't tell the difference. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe it's being that age at that time. Yeah. Yeah. It's
0: very. I've just come back from Glastonbury, and the yeah, the dance music of my youth twenty years ago is completely different now. Yeah. I you know I sound like an old old fart, but I don't get much, yeah. much
2: yeah no neither do I but anyway but the I mean in terms of the I don't know I mean I always felt like one of the things is a, I used to I dabbled for a while in playing bridge and it's an expression bridge of cross roughing you know where you play the hand opposite and you use the cards you've got in this hand to maneuver the lead from one side of the table to the other and I felt like I was doing that a bit with the, with the Atlantic Ocean, you know, that I was sort of taking things that I was learning in Britain and applying them in America and then vice versa, coming back here. And, you know, I, I came back to America after my first trip to Britain telling Paul Rothschild about <clears throat> all these young bands that were listening to Muddy Waters and all this. And, and, I, and I'd heard um, Spencer Davis' group play a Lead Belly song in a Birmingham pub and i you know went back and and Paul and i tried to form a band to do exactly that and that turned into loving spoonful which i wasn't involved in but yeah. that was sort of i was involved in the kick you know the planting the seed and then something about the way that folk music was sort of taking over the pop world in america or at least invading it with psychedelia coming in as well yeah i i um i think that allowed me to come here and hear the incredible string band and immediately think they should open for the jefferson airplane where they were playing the folk circuit in scotland you know
1: yeah because folk in england at that point or britain was yeah. was, was, was finger in the ear yeah backstreet yeah. pub. tremendous yeah. circuit
2: but but cut yeah. off from exactly pop. exactly
0: so can we go back to your early days as a music fan when you were when you were a young lad
1: yeah this, this is this is a question um which I think we've st- shamelessly stolen from another podcast called The Word, but they always set the scene by asking, um, what, what was the sort of device that you listened to music on when you were growing up in your
2: home? Well, I mean, I grew up, at, uh, you know, I was born in 1942. My earliest memory, I mean, I, my, basically there was two different things that were going on. My father and his mother was a con- had been a concert pianist, who taught, gave me piano lessons and was had studied with Leszczycki and been an assistant to Arthur Schnabel in Berlin. And, you know, she was a proper classical musician, and I lear- lis- learned how to listen by listening to her play a piano live. Um, but then my mother had 78s. My father had 78s of classical recordings. My mother, the ones that I remember which mostly, I think, got broken by me and my brother when we were young, um, were the ones that I particularly remember were uh, Blonde and Frauen by Marlena Dietrich from The Blue Angel and uh, Mama Eu Quero by Carmen Miranda, um, which, when I heard those two songs, well, in the case of Marlena Dietrich, like, Fifteen years later, when I was at Harvard and I went to a rep cinema to see the Blue Angel, and I wasn't aware of what was in it, and it got to the scene where she sings, "Blonde and Vrouwen," yeah. it was like comp- absolute amazing f- sensation because I completely forgotten about that record until that moment. And I realized I knew it absolutely intimately, mm-hmm. and it was such a thrill. And the same thing in a way when I first heard, you know, like another twenty years later, and I heard Carmen Miranda recording of mama oh i know that that was what i you know i i used to listen to that when i was six and um uh but we had a 78 player you know it wasn't very fancy but then we got i think um you know we got an lp
1: because i guess the lps came out in the early 50s yeah yeah and
2: i think we We were the last people on our block to have a television set, but I think we we did have a a good record player from an early point.
1: Do you you remember what the first record you bought with your own money
2: was? Probably Harry Belafonte or something. Uh, But the first record that really impacted me, I mean, I guess you could say Harry Belafonte impacted me. I liked that Calypso LP. Um... And I actually, to my shame, have to admit that I think I probably bought the uh, Kingston Trio, but before that, I bought 45s. I mean, we bought lots of R&B, doo-wop 45s. I mean, that we had a big stack of those. My brother and I, and uh, but the first LP that really impacted was an RCA Victor compilation called the Encyclopedia of Jazz, and I still have it. It's unbelievable. It's such a great compilation. It has Sugarfoot Stomp by Fletcher Henderson it has um, a very obscure Louis Armstrong track called Some Sweet Day which is from the early 30s with his big band but it's a great track The Mooch by Ellington and uh, One O'Clock Jump, Count Basie. And then in the middle of all, and this, I mean, where I was lit, and this was given to me as a present by my other grandmother, the non musical, my mother's mother, who wasn't really musical. And she was like, oh, these young people, they like this sort of jazz stuff these days, so I'll get him something called jazz, which she didn't really understand the difference between jazz and rock and roll. and And in the middle of side two, they had Sleepy John Estes Working Man Blues. Now you don't spin all my nineteen forty rounds. Woman, you don't act on my substitute. Now you don't spin all my nineteen forty rounds. Woman, you don't on my substitute. And I remember we got to that and I just went. What is that? That's incredible. So
1: the rest was jazz. So the, the rest was jazz, was and this
2: was like country blues, so and what, that was my first real dose of country blues. Acoustic blues. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And and Sean Estes, who who's beca- remained and still remains, you know, a hero and an iconic figure in my. This is great. Book. You never forget
0: your first, the album. The yeah. first yeah. really
2: made an impact on you. Yeah.
0: you? What yeah. was your first one? It, it was an old compilation of of, of, of rock and roll, so it, it was. It was early Frankie Valley. It was, and I remember mm. and there was a guy with a big quiff on the front, and I just remember getting it back, back home. I didn't really know what I'd bought, and it was, yeah, blew th- me away. I, th- I think mine was a compilation. It's often mm. a compilation or a sampler. <coughs> yes. It's a fantastic
1: way to listen to lots of stuff, <coughs> many of which is rubbish. <laughs> yeah. But you find one or two gems on it, and it, it begins the journey, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. I, you, you mentioned both your grandmothers. <coughs> Excuse me. And in White Bicycles, your uh, fantastic book, by the way, and anybody's not read it, I think the dedication is to your maternal grandmother. No, taught, you, taught you to listen.
2: Yeah, my my father's
1: mother. And and, and I, I I think at some point during the book you say that you were privileged to listen for a living, or you wanted oh, yeah. to listen for a, yeah. listening for a living, which just sounds yeah. a fantastic thing. Yeah. When you started listening to records, did you listen differently to to, to live music? Did you? Did you analyse? Did you find yourself doing that? Or just, was it feeling that you went with or beat? Or
2: I, I mean, I, I didn't think about it at the time. I think, I do think the two things I would say in retrospect, I mean, you know, with hindsight, not what I was aware of mm. at the time, but looking back, I would say two things, one very general and one more specific, is that um, I think my approach as a producer was shaped by all the listening I did. And I think there's no substitute for listening. You know, the broader and the wider and the more you... And, and to me, I and mean, this is probably one of my shortcomings as a producer from a commercial point of view, in that I wasn't... I mean, there are some producers, obviously, whether it's Mickey Most or Phil Spector or whatever, who just related absolutely to the teenage musical mentality and were determined to tap into whatever was of that moment. And I always, at some point, subconsciously or in the back of my mind, or even in the front of my mind, I wanted to make records that I could listen to in 50 years, the way I listened to things 50 years earlier. You know, so or, the records that weren't subject to
0: the vagaries of fashion. Yeah,
2: yeah, and you know, and and for example, when in the '60s I had a guitar player say, once stereo?" We started mixing things in stereo, saying, "Oh, let's pan the guitar solo from right to left and put a phaser on it," and I would say, "No, yeah, yeah. we're not going to do that." So
1: how how did you work? How did you get get the sound that you were looking for?
2: I mean, it's not. Um, there's no trick to the process. I mean, I think this is where we get into the, the other much more specific thing that I think in retrospect that I got from my, back, my childhood and my background. My grandmother was a student of Leschetizky, who taught Arthur Schnabel and was one of the great teachers of the Vienna music world. And a years later, I read something about his playing and his approach. And she, my grandmother mentioned this as well which was this thing called the singing right hand in which the melody line that you play in a way that you don't you don't distort the balance between the right and the left mm-hmm. hand everything has a va- it's almost equal value but somehow the technique plays is able to give that just that little something of texture to the melody line in the right hand that allows the direction of the music to sing and to be heard and to stand out within all the complex chording and harmonies and everything that's going on and and I think in when I think now back about the way I approached producing and mixing music in the sixties and subsequently is that what I always what I've seized on what I learned from John Wood and seized on and always remembered was You know, to try and get everything to be audible, to be everything clear, but the thing that was carrying the emotion or carrying the melody or carrying the message, whether it was the vocal or the lead instrument, without making it much louder, you try to give it a sonic atmosphere that allows it to be heard without... Because, you know, one thing I learned from John Wood, I think he said it to me in very blunt and probably profane terms, but... A glass can only be full. If you turn one thing up, you're turning everything else down. And so... That's
0: uh, very good, yeah. yeah. You can't put more in a glass than it can... Always. Yeah,
2: exactly. Yeah. And so if, you, if the guitar player says, you've got to make my guitar louder, I would turn around and say, you realise that means everything else is going to be quieter. And he'd so, say, no, 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 I want everything else at the same level and my guitar a little louder. I said, excuse me, but if your guitar is louder, everything else will mathematically be quieter. And, and so I concentrated on trying to have mixes where you could hear everything, warm, full sound. But the line, whether it was the voice or a lead instrument that carried the message of the emotion of the song, you wanted it to ring and sing and stand out. And I realized that that was actually, I was sort of doing with my mix on folk rock in Britain in the 60s, what Leszczycki was talking, teaching to his piano players in the 19th century.
0: See, when you talk about this, I'm thinking of Brighter Later, the Nick Drake album, and I'm specifically thinking of the piano on on Northern Star. Northern Sky. Northern Sky, I beg your pardon. Um, Is that an example of what you're talking about? You know, that wonderful riff that kind of...
2: Yeah, I mean, I I, I don't, I can't say it's, I mean, I think everything, I I like to think that everything was a reflection of a particular aesthetic or a way, which is... You know, probably a lot of people will say, well, that's just obvious. I mean, that's the way you mix something. But I do think that if you listen to a lot of records earlier on, um, there was a, you know, there was it was quite okay to have instruments way in the distance in the background and not a lot of things in the mix that weren't very present or very warm necessarily, that there was a focus on... The drums and the voice or something and uh you know but i mean you know classic records sun studios i mean sam phillips i mean that's you know you hear everything yeah it's yeah. all there you know and it's all vivid and yeah. three-dimensional and you know that yeah. kind of thing is what you aim for yeah.
0: most of your recordings or many of your recordings in
2: london at the time were at,
0: at um, sound techniques in right. in chelsea was there anything special about that place? I mean, just the name, Sound Techniques, kind of speaks to the process, doesn't it? What was special about the place?
2: Well, it was, I mean, I'd stumbled on it by accident, uh, but um, I just liked it as a room, and I liked John Wood, and it just became an easy place to go. And and
1: um, Was John the uh, engineer there?
2: He was the engineer and partner. He and and a guy called Jeff Frost set it up, um, and I think there's a this. There was a great article in a studio magazine about ten years ago about the history of sound techniques that um, you can probably find online. There's and they're trying to make some people are trying to Jeff Frost's son is trying to make, or some other people actually are trying to make a a documentary about sound techniques. But it was a former dairy in Chelsea, and so the. And it was a brick building, so it was quite solid. But it wasn't the ground floor. The studio was on the first floor, and it was two stories high. Um, and the great thing about it was that, one of the great things about it was that they built the control room up. You had to go up the stairs. It was like a little box in the yeah. side of this big room, in one, one end of the big room. Uh, and then on the other side of the room... They had the office, the administrative office, and the bathroom. And because of the plumbing, for the bathroom, it was a lot deeper, this box that was sat in one corner. And so you had... And then in the middle, you had the full height. Double double height, yeah. Yeah, so you had three different ceiling heights. You know, one under the low... The lowest was under the bathroom. The highest was in the middle. And in between, halfway between the lowest and the highest was under the studio. And so you could, and that was one of the things I learned from John. I mean, you know, that, that, um, you know, today, I think a lot of engineers, you know, if they, you know, usually are recording an instrument in a dead space and, you know, if you want it to be a little brighter or you want it to be, have a little more resonance or hear the bottom strings more, whatever you tweak, tweak, tweak the knobs yeah. and John would sort of listen to something. If it didn't like it, he would lumber. He was quite a large man, Is still and lumber down the stairs and go and move the microphone or change the microphone or um, or move the musician. Say, no, 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 go over here. And then re-mic, you know, and listen go back and listen. He would never so she- EQ as yeah. you recorded. You know, you might do a little EQing when you were mixing, but as you recorded, you would very rarely, you know, if there was something you didn't like, you'd change the microphone, change the room position, change the positioning of the microphone something like that yeah. which which so using the room yeah to, yeah, yeah so an you record it in a space yeah, yeah. and i think i like to think a lot of the recordings that we did there sound very three-dimensional they have a you feel the space you feel the
1: were they live recordings you know, yeah which mostly. again doesn't tep- typically doesn't happen these days Right, you know you laying yeah. track on top of track exactly def- and
2: people come up to me and say, "Oh man, I love that sound you got on the strings on Riverman, mm-hmm. you know, how'd you get that?" Yeah. And I said, "Well, we recorded it all live, you know, yeah. Nick sang that song in front of, you know, yeah. the, the strings." Yeah. And um, and people sometimes write in and say, "Are you going to ever release, you know, five leaves left with just the voice and guitar tracks like Pink Moon, mm-hmm. you yeah. know?" And I say, "Why? A why would you want to do that and B? No, because <laughs> You can't. There's no separation. Yeah. You know, Danny Thompson was standing next to Nick, you know, and the strings were standing were, were seated next to Nick. It was all in one space. I hadn't realised Danny played on that record.
1: Yeah, he was playing bass on it, was
2: he? Yeah, yeah, he yeah. played bass on five years left. Yeah. Given
0: what you just said earlier about the the Mickey Most pop thing versus the longevity, when those albums
2: Which I have to say, just in fairness to yeah. Mickey Most, that we were just I was just yesterday, last night played uh, Andrea, my wife, um, um, Sunshine Superman yeah. beginning to end great record, record. it lasts
0: yeah. <laughs> were you were you disappointed at the time when those Nick Drake records failed to kind of take off as, as, as you'd hoped
2: of course you know I mean in a way I mean I didn't think about it at the time but in a way the whole financial structure <laughs> of which season productions yeah. was you know assumed that people you spent a lot of time and money on would sell yeah and only Fairport and the Incredible String Band did, and Nick Drake did not, and John Beverly Martin did not, mm. and you know, Father and Gay, fa- well, Father and Gay did a bit, but yeah. um, uh, but not at the rate at which Sandy spent the money. Right. Yeah. So is there a sense of of,
0: of vindication now? Is that the word that these these albums are now seen as as, mm. as the
2: classics that they are? Well, sure. You know, it's nice. It's but it it's there's a very sad. Feeling about that too, yeah. because um, you know, I mean, I went to see Searching for Sugar Man, and there's that scene in South Africa where there's 10,000 people waiting in a big hall for this guy that they thought was dead, and he walks out on stage, and the place goes crazy. Yeah. And when I saw that, I just burst into tears, wow. mm-hmm. you know, because you know, because your fantasy thought, is yeah. like, you know, maybe. We thought we only think Nick's dead. Yeah. <laughs> you know. <laughs> um uh you know, it's uh, it was it was very um it was very sad. I never felt
0: magic as this,
2: this I never saw
0: wounds knew the meaning of the sea. I never heard the motion my a Felt sweet in the top of a tree but now
1: you're here. My northern sky. could I just ask you about how I'm, I'm really interested in the listening right and learning about records and then at so, and I know I, I will say again please read white bicycles because there's so many things that you've been in the middle of before you get to recording your first record as a producer how did you where where did you record your first record, and how did you get the opportunity to become a producer?
2: I mean, I decided, you know, I was fascinated. I read after hearing Sleepy John Estes on that record, you know, I became intrigued with country blues, and then I read Sam Charters' book, uh, The Country Blues, when it first came out, and listened to lots and lots of old blues reissues. The, the only ones are available, and and the Harry Smith box and things like that and i just thought being a record producer was the coolest but it's tragic that i was born too late and that this job that that ralph peer did in the 20s is no you know it's over you know and and then little by little and i was a big rock and roll fan but i somehow disconnected it was like there weren't very many books that sort of told the whole continuity of American musical culture, African American music, and um, uh, and I then one day I was I was I heard the new Fats Domino record walking to New Orleans, and I remembered reading somewhere that he was from New Orleans. I said, Oh, rock and roll is just the continuity of Jelly Roll Morton and. All this great stuff that I, you know, it was like I had two halves of my brain that were completely and disconnected, that's, that's and yeah. they came together. And once I, they came together, I realized I could be a record producer. This same stuff happens today, and so I decided at age seventeen that's what I was going to do. And so uh, everything I did basically from then on was aimed at becoming a record producer. Oh, so you had a plan? I had a well. I didn't have a formal plan, plan. An, aim, I had, yes. an aim? I had an aim. I had an aim. And I was very fortunate. I mean, I met a series of people who just were so... It was just these... You know, And uh, I put myself in position to do that. But still, I met a guy called Bob Kester who ran a record store in Chicago and also uh, had a label called Delmark, recorded old blues singers. And when I took a year off from Harvard, he... Uh, gave me an introduction to Les Koenig, who ran Contemporary Good Time Jazz Records in California. And I turned up at Les Koenig's office and he gave me a job as the um, uh, office assistant. And, you know, once a week or once every other week or whatever, he would say, Clear out the warehouse, clear out the shipping room, we're having a session today. And they would convert the shipping room into a recording studio. And I would move the piano and take the cover off and put the, and the engineer would bring the microphones out and, and at about noon, you know, the back door, there was an alley back there with some parking and the back door bell would ring and I'd open the door and Philly Joe Jones would walk in with his <laughs> drum kit, you know, and, and, uh, or Leroy Vinegar would carry his bass in and, and I go... Okay, <laughs> you know I'm here. I'm in the music business. And Were you nervous
0: when that happened? I mean, you must no, know.
2: I was thrilled. Yeah. And um, and then uh, when I got back to Harvard, I had to fill out a form because I it was the middle of the year and I had to be put into a room with somebody who'd been kicked out. And. So you had this form you went through, like, put in, what are your interests? And I put, you know, music, blues, jazz, sports. I was really a sports fan. And they said, okay, you're in room such and such. And I went there, brought my bags. And one of the roommates was the guy who did the play-by-play for the Harvard radio station for football and hockey. And the other one was Tom Rush. Oh, wow. And (laughs) so... That's called a coincidence, yeah, isn't exactly, it? Exactly, yeah. exactly. And so I ended up writing the liner, going to and sitting in on the studio when Tom Rush made his first album for a local producer, and I wrote the liner notes for it. and And I started making friends with all the folk singers in Boston, and wrote the liner notes for a couple of other records. And you know, so I was sort of little by little making my way into. And you learned
0: how to. You learned the, 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 the skills of how to produce the the actual. It, you know, I quite a, it's quite a know-how, isn't it? It's yeah, well, a... I,
2: was, I just watched Sessions, and it all seemed quite logical. Yeah. And then I met Paul Rothschild, who was, um, when I got back from California after my six months with Contemporary, Paul had somehow... Paul was a local salesman for the distributor who distributed Prestige and Riverside and Contemporary and all the local independent labels. And... Um, and he discovered the Club 47 and started hanging out there and I met him and um, and then I had to take I got a job I, I started putting on concerts with blues singers and I got a uh, the local promoter hired me to see escort um, Jesse Fuller around when he came to do a series of concerts and a recording session. And so I took Jesse Fuller to the recording session for Prestige, which Paul Rothschild was producing. And Paul said, you know, here, kid, keep the keep the track list, you know, and and I knew I'd already been at a recording session in California for Good Time Jazz with Jesse Fuller. So I knew Jesse Fuller and I knew his repertoire. And he'd start to sing a song, and I'd say, That's on the that's on the other record. You don't <laughs> want to do that. Yeah. You know, and, and And so Paul Rothschild, I think, made a mental note that I was helpful and I was a smart kid. And so he would, when later he moved to New York, and if I was ever in New York, I would ring him up and he'd say, yeah, we're we're doing a session at Mastertone. Come on by, you know. And so I would just go and I would keep the track list and watch what he did and, you know, so. And then I got to Britain and at one point I came, my needed you know, I was always I didn't have any money, and so I would sleep on people's sofas. and I was offered the chance to sleep on Bill Leader's sofa, who was the guy making all the records for topic. Yes. and um, and he was couldn't have been more different than Paul. Right. Paul was very obsessed with sound, and Paul, Rothschild's records sound so great. I mean, you know, if you think about the doors, uh, people are strange. I mean, that's such a great sounding record. Yeah, and, yeah. and the Janice, the Pearl record, you know, Janice, the best sounding record she ever made. And, and um, you know, he was a brilliant... Was he, was he independent or was he attached to Elektra? He was attached to Electra for a long time. Uh, but then he was independent for a while after that. And then he got cancer and died, very sadly. But um, uh, But Bill was not somebody who was obsessed with sound the way... Paul was, but he was obsessed with getting a performance and making people feel at ease and feel their music was loved and made, you know, that you were really listening. And, you know, he would just set up, put up egg crates in his kitchen and hang a, you know, hang a microphone and got a mono Revox.
1: And recording the kitchen. Yeah, right? and recording
2: yeah. the kitchen. The first Watersons record is 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 done in Bill Leader's kitchen. You know,
1: Where, whereabouts is that in, London? Camden, Camden, in Camden? Camden,
2: yeah. And I was there. You know, and yeah. I mean, he they were there, and I was sitting there, and they were singing, and you know, he was turning on the Revox, and you know, and that was the record that we is now a classic. And and
1: uh, Wait, which album is that? Do you, do I think you it's know? just
2: called the Watersons. The first first, first yeah, one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. and. Um, and, you know, and I went with him on expeditions to record people in other parts of England. And so I learned, you know, so I was, I felt like, yeah, I know how to do this. Yeah. Just when give you me a chance. In you know?
0: expeditions, what do you mean? You go up to folk clubs? We're, we're no, with
2: we, went, we went, we went, we went, spent three days in Whitby, Yorkshire. No, in, uh, yeah, in, well, Northumberland. or Whitley North, Bay, Whitley, uh, Whitley, Bay. Bay, Whitley yeah. Bay. Oh, Whitley Bay, yeah, yeah. yeah. Just, and and uh, recording the Fisher family, Archer, Archie Fisher and Ray Fisher and um, Scottish singers. And um,
1: where, where did you record them, in
0: clubs or...? or no,
2: where? no, we recorded them in their house. Wow. You know, in the kitchen, you know, or in the living room. I mean, this house. is Fred
0: Geisberg's uh, seven decades later, wasn't it? You know, yeah. going into the field
2: with your equipment. yeah. But it wasn't. But the point was not to do a quote field recording. Yeah. It was to make a proper record. Yeah. I mean, you know, Bill made really good records that are that don't sound like field recordings. You don't have background noise. You don't have. You know, it's not like John Allen Lomax. It's you know, it's. It's proper records. I mean, you know, and 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 he did. I mean, he's a wonderful. Engineer producer. I mean, he got a really good sound. He just wasn't. It was mostly one microphone, yeah. and and he was very. And he teaches. And he's still alive, and he teaches in Manchester, and and teaches engineers and stuff. I mean, he knows what he's doing absolutely. And and he was a wonderful guy. I mean, he is still a wonderful guy. And um, um, could could I ask you about yeah. uh, just because you talk about field
1: recordings versus? Yeah. There's a story in, in White Bicycles about a dinner party the yeah. you have a conversation with <laughs> yeah. Alan, Alan Lomax, whose mm. reputation is as the doyen of field recording um, collect, song collectors. Yeah. Can you...
2: <clears throat> well, it was, it was a very funny evening. It was at Lucy Duran's house. Who's a, who's the, she's the eminence grise of world music in London. She's the one who taught me, taught Nick Gold, Everything about Malian music and Cuban music and um, and she just knows everything. She's like a walking encyclopedia, and she has this flat. she's always been in this flat in Camden town. and one evening, there was a gathering there. I think Tumani Diabate was in town, and he was there, and so she invited Alan Lomax, who was in town. He came. I was there. Charlie Gillett, I think, was there. And um, I think Andy Kershaw and a few people. Okay. And um, I found myself sitting next to Alan Lomax, who I knew, but I was hopeful that he didn't remember how he knew me. You know, because he I'd been the one at Newport where he came over and said, you've got to turn that sound down when Bill, Dylan was playing his electric guitar. And I was the one who had to tell him, you know, that Peter Yarrow, who was also on the board of Newport, was sitting at the controls with Paul Rothschild. This, this said, is one of my favourite stories yeah. from White Bicycles. Yeah, yeah, you, yeah, yeah like yeah. the intermediary between <laughs> yeah. these yeah. two
1: <laughs> powerful men. <laughs> yeah,
2: and um, uh, so I was praying that he didn't remember that. Um, and um, and also I'd optioned Mr. Jelly Roll uh, yeah. from him, but I'd never really, I'd only met him once in that period. I'd never made a film, but... It was a nice idea, uh, but I always dealt with his manager. Um, and that and was
0: a conversation that evening.
2: So then we had this conversation. And so at some point I kind of, I don't know, somehow the subject of like the aesthetic or what you're doing as a field, making field versus studio. And I said, well, you know, it's really the same job. You just have a different audience. You know, there's a more academic audience for a field recording. And it's just like you're making a record for an intended audience and there is an aesthetic and assumption behind that and it's different you know and he basically you know okay. kind of stood up and he, he'd had a few drinks <laughs> and he said come out and and say that I'm going to punch your teeth in you know <laughs> and, to
0: me pistols at dawn over recording I guess
1: p- the field recorders had this thing about authenticity yeah, doesn't that, they? yeah which, that's exactly which, it yes but which ironically um, and I, I, it's touched in your book again, but I, I read it elsewhere. So I think it was Lead Belly that that, mm. that Lomax picked up on. And but Lead Belly, a bit like Robert um, Johnson, played all sorts of music. Mm. But but the authentic version of him was he you know he played a particular you know he looked like a convict. Actually, he had a smart suit and he would play weddings. But it, uh, he also yeah w- was was portrayed as this sure. kind of authentic. I'm always a bit. Oh, Jimmy Page things.
0: being a session musician and playing on all sorts of things before uh, before Zeppelin.
2: Yeah.
0: Tell me Joe, jo, do you feel you've had a sort of a ringside seat on some sort of seminal moments in the oh, yeah. history of rock and roll? I mean that must be a pretty well, I mean not about movement. rock
2: and roll so much as as a broader sense of music. I I mean I'm I'm, yeah. I'm more excited in a way when I think back on memories of about the first time I saw Ivo Popazov playing a wedding in Bulgaria as I am about having seen Dylan go electric, you know, but that's just me, you yeah. know. Um, but, certainly I th- I think, you know, the 60s being here in London in the 60s was certainly a great and extraordinary time when a lot of things happened and yeah. they happened very fast and they happened quickly and they happened, you know, things changed, you know, and I, I saw, you know, I was at the Savile Theatre when Jimi Hendrix jumped on top of Noel Redding and uh, you know i was uh i saw we, we had Procol haram playing at ufo the night that white or shade of pale was released Man. when nobody would ever heard it you know and um um yeah i mean i i've i've seen a lot of, and i you know jazz i've seen you know i mean i've i've had an incredibly vivid life listening to music and and it's also a way to dive into other cultures you know if you if you go to brazil or greece or wherever and your first point of contact is a musician or a producer or a record label or a writer a music writer or something like that or you've gone to a local festival or something like that you're you're right into the culture yeah. in a way that you never would be as a tourist. I mean, I'm so spoiled. I, I, it's very difficult for me to go traveling like a tourist. I bet, I bet,
0: because you're working on a book about world music at the yeah. moment. Is that? Right? Can you tell us a bit about that?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's it's um, watch for it in I don't know. Let's see the uh, the spring of 2021, <laughs> okay. maybe, maybe if we're lucky, the autumn of 2000. I don't know, but. Um, um, I've got a deal. I've just concluded negotiating a deal with a publisher, and uh, so that's exciting. And so it's about three quarters finished. Um, And basically the idea of it, I mean, it's, it's, I don't know, I I still am waiting for that great title that sort of tells everybody what this book is just in two words. (laughs) But I can best explain by giving some examples. It's like the starting point of the book is... It's my own experience, but more it's a history book in a way. And the, the music that has come from exotic places to reach us, by us, I mean the listeners in Anglophone, North America, Europe, Germany, France, you know. Yeah. Um,
0: Western audiences.
2: Yeah, the w- music that has come from Western audiences and has had the biggest impact tango reggae samba son south african eastern europe indian what what's the story behind this where do they come from what you know and in every one of them there's things that nobody knows that are very contrarian to what everybody believes like for example i mean one of the first ideas the two there were two things that i learned or knew that I thought "Mm, something in those two facts is a book and one fact is I knew enough I'd had enough contact with South Africa and I knew a lot about South Africa uh, when Graceland came out and then I mean and Paul Simon did a fantastic thing of that Mm. tour with the Ladysmith playing you know showing off South African music not just a promotional tour for Graceland but a promotional tour for South African music and everybody bought into Ladysmith and then they discovered Mahlatini and it was like, wow, this stuff is so great. And buying it felt virtuous. Yeah. It yeah. felt so virtuous. It felt like, not only is this great music, we love it, but we're doing a good deed by loving it. Because obviously this is supporting Mandela against those horrible boors. Wrong. Lady Smith Black Mombazo was the kind of, and Machlatini even more so, were the soundtrack for the Zulus. And the Zulus were in alliance with the government against the ANC. They were being armed by the government and they were coming out and killing ANC members and getting pumped up to go out and do so by listening to Mahalatini records. And ANC people in the townships listened to disco. You know, it was very important. That was part of the uh, ethos of the ANC, was to be modern, to be non-tribal, to be anglophone, you know, and to be outward connected and uh and so it's exact almost the opposite of of what what people people thought And so it's extraordinarily complicated yeah so that story explaining how this music evolved how it came to be and what the tensions were behind the scenes and all of this i thought okay that's a cool chapter yeah and then i was always intrigued i loved from i heard the kutev ensemble the bulgarian women's choir in the 60s and then it became again popular in the 80s uh, with the Mystère de Boulgare records. And I always was curious, like, why does the Bulgarian state ensemble sound so cool? And every other Eastern European state ensemble sounded like shit. You know, it sounds so boring. What's that? And then I met... Elena Kuteva, who was the daughter of Philip Kutev, who was the guy who sort of developed the women's choir in Bulgaria and wrote all those great arrangements and taught everybody else who wrote further arrangements. And she told me, she said, we're in the early 50s, you know, we took the choir to, my father took the choir to Russia and did a tour. They were never invited back. The Russians absolutely detested them. And And I just decided I wanted to find out why. And, you know, because it was clear that, in a way, it's authenticity, as you were saying, that Kutev recruited women from the villages to sing with that open-throat voice that is the Slavic village voice. And Moiseev, who created the big ensemble in Russia, recruited every singer from the ones who didn't make the cut at the Bolshoi and who would never dream of singing with a village voice, with an open-throat voice. And he hated folk music. And he, and Stalin, you know, was part of a political agenda to crush rural culture because rural culture never liked communism, hated collectivization. It was an urban phenomenon, communism. It was the factory workers, and they had put all that stuff behind them. They hated it. The communists went out into the countryside, and these women singing these ancient songs and walking in a circle around the church, yeah, yeah. and doing all this stuff. That's, we got to get rid of that, you know. And Gorky saying, you know, we have to create a new peasant, and therefore we have to eliminate all of this. And here comes Kutev, celebrating it in its Bulgarian form, and the Russians were just like, "Get the hell out of here with this shit," and teach, <laughs> teaching everybody else. From the other countries, not to do not the to same do. error that Kutep is doing. So there's a whole story about that struggle within communism, within nationalism, about who owns the music and what does it mean. Gosh, really... how fascinating! So, so that's my chapter on the. Can you Eastern finish Europe. this book a little bit? <laughs> I think you just sold two copies. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the t- I mean,
0: the term cultural appropriation is such a blunt instrument, yeah, isn't it? It's yeah. So much more nuanced and sort of yeah. fluid than that. Yeah, it? yeah. How fascinating. Just back to the recording, the kind of big picture recording and production um, industry, your, your, your kind of history. Um, in your lifetime, what's the one technological advance that has most altered the recording
2: process? Well, I'm afraid the answer is probably the obvious one, the, the, the digital technology, which, you know, I mean, I hesitate to just talk about it in a way because I end up sounding like a curmudgeon. Because it's very sad to me, you know, the way I hear a lot of modern records, that the singing is good, the song is nice, but it's clear that there's a click track going on somewhere Mm. and that it's perfect and that every note has been massaged or nudged or moved or whatever, and it's been layered up with everything done so that it's absolutely the way it's supposed to be. And my feeling when I listen to a record like that is interesting, great. I never have to hear this again. (laughs) You know, um, I believe that when you record a group of musicians in a room, and even if you overdub the backing voices or you overdub the sax solo later or you, you know, and you mix it and you put a lot of trouble and attention into mixing it, you still, the core of it is a moment where people interact with each other and where the musicians don't actually know what's going to happen next so they're a part of the process rather than the whole of the yeah they, the moment. that moment is yeah. happening the moment has uncertainty yeah. and it has an adventure and i believe and this is you know i have no proof this is not a scientific thing it's just my own particular take on it is that when a, as a listener you listen to music that has that quality of uncertainty. Even when you listen to it for the 25th time, every time you listen to it, you experience a little bit of that adventure, which is drained from the music when you have perfection, and when you have a click track, and when you have a machine generating the rhythm. and And to me... Modern records that are made that way with digital technology, they're interesting, but they enter my brain via a different door than music and does. Yeah.
1: I guess if you, if you collect, capture a moment, you're capturing a performance. Yeah. Whereas if you're capturing layers, you're capturing mm-hmm. a brick, a wall made of bricks rather than a, a performance. You yeah, yeah. feel dead, doesn't and, it?
2: And, you know, and, and at the same time, I don't... This was my argument with Lomax, in a way, it was... And this is maybe why he wanted to punch my punch me in the mouth is because I think there is implicit my feeling that I'm not that interested in listening to field recordings. I'm not obsessive about like, oh, let's have absolute authenticity and be in the moment. Because I think there is, to me, and this is my argument with fusion, you know, people who think, oh, I love African choral music, but we got to put it with a Swedish fiddler in order to sell it, <laughs> yeah. you know. Because to me, you take the authentic music, not just any authentic music, but the best, the greatest artists that a culture has produced, and you record them the way you would record a great classical string quartet. You know, you put every effort into getting the best microphones, the best room, the best engineers. You treat it like high art and then you don't need a French bass player. You know, you, you just, you, it just is what it is, and the great virtuosi can be presented that way. And, um, and so to me, in a way, the biggest change in, in, in technology is, is the digital revolution, and it's not a, a change for good. On the other hand, you can't deny the fact that it's democratized uh, yeah. music.
1: And all recording, we are sitting around a very yeah. cheap... Absolutely, digital recording device. Hopefully, it'll be high quality. <laughs> but it's so it's a the, the tools of production are available to everybody now. Exactly, yeah. and but so that the downside is that's yeah.
2: great. And and you know, I would not. You know, the the implication of some of my thoughts sometimes is. You know, I remember in the '60s. I think when I read these histories of very obscure bands, you know, the, these goldmine does an article about you know the whole, the Canterbury scene, six bands, you know, from the Canterbury scene or whatever. I remember every single one. Not necessarily that I heard it or I can tell you what they sounded like, but I remember reading a paragraph review in Melody Maker about that group. Anything that was released in the I remember that it came out. There weren't that many. Mm. There was a filter. You had to get over a barrier to get of a convincing an A&R man, convincing a, you know, which is obviously, we're not in that world anymore. And there's a lot to be said about not being in that world. However, there is something to be said for having those filters, you know, for the fact that there were some, you know, I mean, it's just experiential. You look at the fact there were, there were these filters these control mechanisms yeah. that only allowed the best or people that were perceived as the best and that's part but, technological it's also part yeah. part of the music press played yeah, a huge exactly, role in that exactly and actually
0: the music press ironically because of technology is 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 going through the same problems as yeah. uh,
2: and yeah. and but whatever you say about it and conceptually of course it's much better now to be democratic but You go to the few record stores that remain what box sets are piled high by the cash register they're all from the 60s or the 50s or the 40s or the maybe the 70s and um there are not many box sets of artists from the last you know 25 years but we'll see history will will um will tell us you know
0: who do you enjoy at the moment is there any artist that that, that currently releasing who
2: well, I just went the other night. Wonderful concert um, at Cafe Otto, a wonderful place, which I try to go to as often. Where is it? It's in uh, Dalston. All right. Yeah. It's uh, it's just a little room. It reminds me of the Club Forty Seven. You know, it's very bare bones, simple. But and most of what most of what they put on is not that interesting to me. They're very inter- They're very. I mean, I'm, I'm, God bless them. They love free form improvisation. A lot of that sort of borderline jazz, classical, free music. Not so interesting for me. But they had Alistair Roberts, the Ah, other night, uh, with a, um, um, a French group that he'd met somewhere, and they did a project together. And it was wonderful, sitting around in a circle you know it's sam folk, lee very yeah quite traditional folk he has yeah. been, hasn't he? Alistair? sam Rogers. lee you know some of the stuff he does with uh i don't always like his records but just his the energy around him and the folk scene that he generates the nest collective and uh um but i also i mean i'm thrilled to be going to see but again this is you know you know, be a cliche, but I mean, we're going to go, Andrea and I are going to go see uh, Lucinda Williams when she comes at the end of July. She's, to me, one of the consummate artists of our time. I mean, she's just fantastic. And um, so that's exciting. But I also, I mean, you know, we've, I've, you know, I, I got married to this woman who works in Albania, and she's educated me about albanian music and we produced a record together uh, and we've just produced a record with a singer from sarajevo oh. so i've gotten kind of intrigued with balkan music and um and having andrea you know is she's got better ears than me <laughs> and and so having her around as a co-producer is is giving me a new enthusiasm, enthusiasm. for going in the studio so we're going to make some other stuff
0: fantastic can I end by asking you one question with two answers? Um, what to you is the most satisfying or complete piece of recorded music that you know? First one generally, the second one that you yourself produce.
2: Um, again, I, it's a little, you know, you, you risk having having your first ever entry into Sood's Corner. <laughs> in, uh, but... Um, uh, but it's, I, I, I will insist, anyone who asks me what is the, the... I mean, there's a lot of great individual tracks going back to, you know... I mean, I spent the other night, I was staying with some friends in the Netherlands and we got out the Louis Armstrong box set and started listening to West End Blues and, you know, the sort of early Hot 5, Hot 7 stuff. And it doesn't get much better than that, you know, as individual tracks and as a collect body of work. But if you're talking talk about an album from the LP era, uh, there's always one album that I will say, without fear of anyone being able to prove me wrong, probably because very few people have ever heard it or will ever hear it. <laughs> but the greatest album ever made is uh, an album called "Savior, Pass Me Not" by the Swan Silvertones. They no. were they were a, over my head. Yeah, yeah they okay. were Swan Silvertones. We're one of the leading gospel quartets uh, touring, starting in the 40s, going through the 50s, 60s.
0: They're furiously writing this down. Claude
2: Jeter, uh, who was the lead singer from and the kind of leader of the group for many, many years, is the high voice on Love Me Like a Rock, the Paul Simon track. Um, and in Aretha's In Amazing Grace, she when she sings Mary, Don't You Weep, and Amazing Grace, she quotes from Claude Jeter's versions of that. There's some of the lines there that she's clearly just, you know, listening the to the sound, Geter. the musicality of it. Yeah, well, quoting. also the yeah. line, the yeah. way that she twists. Wait, as 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 uh, this wonderful Reverend Brewster, who um, uh, is the current great preacher in African American churches, he says the way Aretha worries a note.
0: That's a
2: great line, yeah. It's Claude Jeter. And and, um, um, this, they made lots of great records. There's a lot of great tracks you can hear online, etc. But one afternoon in 1961, they went into VJ Studios in Chicago and they made a record in a day. Every single track is killer. And... It sounds great. And the same producer producing other gospel records like a month later sounds crap. Wow. You know, who, what? something happened that day that was just everything came together. The sound is exquisite. The group never sang better. And every track is just... I could listen. You know, that's my... Amazing. That's my Desert Island disc. You-
1: Everywhere you go, everywhere everywhere Lord, you, with go. you ought to take my Lord everywhere you go Take
0: him everywhere you go, everywhere you go. Mm-hmm. Take him with you Take him with you In your home Take him with you Take him with you And your own work? <sighs> Not to put you on the spot. Yeah,
2: I mean, there's so much. I mean, you know, there are lots of, of records that I've... I mean, I guess the two records that I made that I'm most comfortable listening to without ever thinking, ooh, I could have done that better, you know, are probably one of the two Nick Drake records, Mm -hmm. uh, probably Brighter Later, although I still have regrets about that, of not being able to persuade him to record Robert Kirby's arrangement of Things Behind the Sun which he did on Pink Moon as a solo thing it's Just but there was a he was all ready to go but he said I'm not happy with the song yet and so he didn't record so there are things that I regret about Brighter Later and and allowing Nick to convince me to put those instrumentals all over the but so maybe five leaves left I don't know but the other one is which I didn't really produce from the beginning to end but I Sort of finished it off and edited it and mixed. It was the toots, reggae got soul. Uh, is a v- just every time I listen to it. I mean, it's such a pleasure to listen to it. You know, but there's you know, but I've I've been so fortunate to be to work with many many great artists who i could listen to again and again yeah. you know richard and sandy and, yeah. and mike heron and robin williamson and maria Muldor and you know latterly,
0: rem and, and, and yeah and, R. E. M., and, and and
2: and and um and ten thousand maniacs and yeah. you know um but uh um yeah it's it's uh I, I've, I've to a certain degree. I'm, I'm pleased that for a lot. There's certain things I cringe when I listen to, but mostly I managed to make records that I could still listen to in my old age, which is what I set out to do when I was twenty. Fantastic. Well, I, I, this morning pre- preparing for this conversation, mm.
1: through the wonders of Spotify, I was reading White Bicycles and listening to the bits of music. Mm. I think it's a fantastic body of work. I really do. Thank you. Um, and thank you so much for um, taking the time to talk to us. It's. It's been a great conversation. So sure, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so okay. much. Yeah. Thank Thanks. you. Okay. Cheers. This is The Sound of the Hound. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of The Sound of the Hound. If you'd like to see the show notes, which contain links to some of the things we've been talking about in this episode, please go to thesoundofthehound.com. Select podcasts when you're there and you'll find a page of notes for this episode. Sound of the Hound is a podcast from the EMI Archive Trust. Many of the recordings and artifacts we talk about um, in this series of podcasts are housed by the Trust. If you'd like to know more about the EMI Archive Trust, go to emiarchivetrust.org. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please take the time to leave us a review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. That would be much appreciated. Thank you.